Welcome to Constructed Curiosity, a podcast that aims to expand your horizons and promote personal growth by exploring various topics and having conversations with extraordinary people. I'm your host, Casey Sprague. Thank you for joining me, and let's start the show. Hello, and welcome to Constructed Curiosity. Today, I'm joined by Eric Upchurch. Eric, how are you doing? Good. How are you doing? Not too bad. So the audience doesn't know, but this is actually the second time we recorded this podcast. The first one had a software glitch issue that, you know, didn't let us get more than eight minutes of it. And you deserve way more than eight minutes for a podcast. So that's why I want to get you yeah. back on here. No problem. Glad to be back. Give it another shot. Yep. So Eric, you're a very impressive guy. You've worked in various industries. You had a good military career. Got to work in the special forces side, which we'll get into. But now you do a lot of stuff with active duty, passive income, and real estate. So that's something we'll focus on here a little bit later in the podcast. But first, you know, give the listeners an idea of who you are and how you started out in life. Uh, so I grew up, grew up in, in uh, central Iowa. Uh, Dad was a uh, deputy sheriff. Um, and uh, mom worked or whatever. We just kind of kind of uh, grew up a pretty modest Midwestern upbringing. Um, I started working in the cornfields when I was 12 years old. So, uh, you know, sweat equity was, was, uh, was pretty, uh, pretty early on in life and, um, ended up moving to California as soon as I graduated from high school, actually graduated a buddy and I graduated a semester early from high school. We had an opportunity to move out to California. Um, we went to culinary school there. Then I went to, uh, UC Santa Barbara and, um, after college, I chose to, go the enlisted side of the military it paid off all of my college debt and i got to um start off as an e4 and uh got to you know as a 24 year old got to serve next to 18 year old knuckleheads and help them kind of you know um see bigger brighter futures and i love that part of it being able to influence younger guys so yeah, you're the old guy, not probably the oldest guy, yeah. but one of the old guys. Yeah, one one of the older guys at 24. Yeah, definitely. There was a lot of call outs on on me being older, especially with the <laughs> with the with the E4 Sham Shield. You know, coming into basic training, everyone's like, "Who the heck is this guy? Must be prior service." Yeah, it makes me think of uh, my grandpa, World War II. You know, he was drafted in the '40 draft before Pearl Harbor. And so by the time he actually made it to Europe, he was the old guy. He's in like his mid to like, what, 24, 25, about the same age. Yeah. And that's what all the young guys would tell him they met at a reunion in the early 2000s. And uh, the guy's like, how are you still alive? You're so much older than us. He's like, it's like four years, guys. It's like yeah. a big deal. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Can tell me more it? about your military career. Uh, so I I ended up in 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment um, by accident. Um, I so I enlisted in January. My wedding was in July, and so I knew that I had to make it back for my wedding on time, and um, so that pushed me to not piss anybody off, uh, to not miss any tests, uh, not fail any tests, PT written or or hands-on. I could, I just knew in my head, I can't screw this up or else I'm going to miss my own wedding. And the military doesn't care if you miss your wedding. It's not their wedding. So, uh, had no backup plan. So I ended up, um, at the top of my class through AIT. Um, and that I had no idea, but that was going to land me in a special operations unit. 
Uh, didn't even know that the unit existed actually until my drill sergeant said, you know, called my name out and said I had orders uh, several weeks before anybody else in the class. And um, they told me where I was going and I just said, well, what's that? You know, they said, you're going to 3rd Battalion 160th in Savannah, Georgia. And I was like, I don't know what that means. And they go, you, you idiot. You know, <laughs> that's the, that's where, that's where a lot of us guys are trying to get to, you know, and I'm like, okay, well, sounds, sounds interesting. I had no idea that that meant I was going to have to undergo a lot more training, uh, going through a special operations qualification course. And then I went to airborne and air assault and pathfinder and, um, Navy SEER school and just the schools continued on and on and on. So, and then I deployed five times. So it was a very active and enjoyable, uh, to be honest, uh, career in the military in just a short stint, six years. Yeah. Six years, five deployments. That is crazy, but I know that that's just how that world works. They're usually shorter deployments. Yeah. They're short. A couple months. Still. Yeah. A couple months of it is on and off, on and off. I had a commander at one point that he was in one sixty, and he's like, yeah, you know, you're home for six to eight weeks and you're gone for another six to eight weeks and just back and forth, back and forth, depending on opt tempo. Yeah. And there isn't really uh there isn't really uh Hey, we're going next February. We're deploying. It's like, Hey, Sunday, you're going overseas. You know, <laughs> it's like a <laughs> 72 hour notice type of thing most of the time. But then, you know, I, I, my deployment schedule slowed down quite a bit compared to some of my guys. I was, uh, uh, the way our MTO was set up, I was a squad leader as an E6, um, managing a platoon size element. Uh, a lot of aviation companies, obviously you might know, are set up a little bit larger, um, squads than especially in the shops, platoons and stuff like that. So, um, you know, I ended up managing 27 guys and, um, in my squad and I was sending them overseas. And, uh, so I had to, uh, stay home quite a bit more than uh, a lot of, a lot of you and my, my soldiers did. Yeah, it's a, it's a different world. Aviation is definitely interesting. I haven't been an aviator. It's, it's just a different side of the house and things work a little bit, you know, I'd say strange compared to the majority of the military or how people think about it. So, I mean, compared mm -hmm. to the guys you were seeing, Savannah, it's mostly just Hunter Army Airfield right there. But when you move right. out a little bit more to Stewart, you see the, you know, the straight leg infantry guys or mechanized yeah. infantry. Yeah. That's, that's the, the stereotypical view of what people think the military is. I mean, if you were just telling a, a person right now, what's the difference between an aviator and an infantryman, what would you say? Oh, geez. Um, well, I don't know. I, I actually, other than Rangers, I don't know a lot of infantrymen. So my, my, uh, my recollection of the infantry is just complete insanity. That's how I would char characterize all the Rangers who would hang, hang around, you know, either on base or at, um, at schools we'd go to or overseas, just, just mayhem crazy, you know, whereas I feel like aviators in general are a little bit more level-headed and not so what, well, I'd say not so wild. We had some, there's, we were a little bit wild too, but wild, wild in an aviation way versus wild in an infantry way is two totally separate subsets of human beings. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah. The way I always like to explain it to people is when I was in Afghanistan, you know, you take incoming, you see the guys running to the helicopters for a mission ready mission. That's going to be your aviators. You see the guy running from the bunker and his boxers with a saw that's an infantryman. Yeah. We used to run actually on top of the, uh, on top of the, um, concrete 
uh, bunkers because we were in our own fob inside inside the wire. We had our own compound inside, and so we didn't have to like whenever there's a you know a sirens going off or whatever, we didn't have to like run for the bunker like everybody else kind of did. We, we were just doing whatever we did, you whatever we wanted to do. You sleep through it or you just do whatever, right? So we would run up on top of the airplane, the aircraft hangars, which were concrete structures, and we'd watch them coming in and watch the big. Um, I forget the little R two D two Gatling pizza. guns. Yeah, no, we'd watch those. Uh, we'd watch those things. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We'd watch those things blast rounds into the air and had a great time doing it. Not the smartest thing to go up on top of a building <laughs> at that point, but they, you know, those guys are whoever's launching those um, in, in in towards us. They're not aiming at anything. They're just, you know, they're just lobbing them in and taking off before they get you know shot at or something. So. Literally just two sticks and, you know, a little yeah. detonation mechanism, and that's it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the wonderful CRM system. You would always hear it. You hear the sirens, you're like, I'm not going to worry about it. Then you hear the CRM, you're like, maybe I should worry about it. No, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> closer than I thought. Yep. So what other fun stuff do you get to do during your career? Man, um, I did a trip to Southcom. Uh, we supported um, Central and South um, South America, so uh, as well as obviously the Iraq and Afghanistan simultaneously. But yeah, we we're working with partner nations all the time in in a lot of different countries around the world, and I got to go see South America and train some of their uh, train with some of their um, special forces and stuff, and so that was kind of neat to see a different part of the world. Um, other than that, yeah, just training and, you know, trying to get my, trying to get my Joes to enroll in college and <laughs> some of the just <laughs> boring stuff, but, you know, trying to make a difference in their lives while we weren't out fighting wars and stuff while we're home. So, so six years, that's still a good chunk of time. I know you say a short career, but you know, three years is a minimal tour for most people. Mm-hmm. So you doubled that. Yeah. But what made you want to get out? Yeah. I, um, I, so through my deployments, we, we lost guys and I was just, I was ended up being an additional duty of mine was a burial detail NCOIC. So every time we'd lose a guy that I served with, and some of these guys, I went to basic and AIT, mostly AIT, um, knew a lot of the guys from AIT in a different MOS, but same unit. And then they went to third battalion with me and I knew them for six years and, you know, I see them perish, um, and then I had, I guess, the honor, but uh, kind of in a in a terrifying way of going to their hometown and putting them in the ground. And so when I had my first son, um, I kind of just, uh, you know, my wife and I were like, what are we going to do? And is this going to be a long-term career for me? And I had applied to officer candidate school. Um, I already had a master's degree at that point. Uh, I applied to to officer candidate school in aviation, and I got approved through Special Operations Command uh, Direct Select Program. So I had orders to to go be a second lieutenant in aviation and go to flight school and all that stuff. But I went to battalion after talking with my wife and talking with my commander, who coincidentally works for me now. Um, <laughs> I uh, I decided to deny orders. I submitted a, a 4397 uh, DD form 
4397, I think, is the form number, and denied orders to officer candidate school and flight school just to stay in the unit. Um, a couple of my buddies were Blackhawk pilots and third ID, and they were like, dude, you're in the unit already. If you like it and you don't know whether or not you want to make this career, don't commit to eight more years um, because, you know, flight school is going to take you a couple of years and you're going to owe six more years at least, you know, and then you're going to be just in it. And he's like, you're going to be, I mean, the, the paraphrasing, but he's like, basically you're going to be, and until you assess to come back to 160th as a pilot, you're going to be serving coffee to some colonel or something, you know, in third ID until you, until you get, you know, enough flight hours, you're going to be. So anyway, that just wasn't appealing to me. I was like, I like what I got going on here. I like the guys. I like the mission. Um, I've been through all the training here. So I just decided, you know what, it's, it, that's not going to be the path I need to take. Um, and it was time for me to get out. So, um, ended up just, uh, not re-upping and it turned out. And I also, you know, looking at it financially, I was making like what, $46,000 a year as a staff sergeant and all the danger and all the sorrow and all the pain and all the, the hardship. And I'm like, I know I can do better than this on the outside. There's no way that I can not make more than 50 grand a year with my education and experience. Um, and so I just made the decision and, uh, and I don't regret it at all. It was the right decision to make. So. No, absolutely. I mean, nobody having worked in many operations or three shops as the army calls them, you're not missing anything unless you mm -hmm. just absolutely love sitting at a desk and planning being a second Lieutenant. Is a miserable experience. Yeah. Especially yeah. in aviation, you don't even get a platoon until you hit first lieutenant. And I mean, it's funny you talk about the pay difference. So when I was still in the reserves, they're trying to get people to move for a year. And they're struggling to find people who wanted to leave their civilian jobs because you were taking, you know, a 50 to 60 grand pay cut for some people mm -hmm. to go do that for a year. And that's a major thing. So there's definitely a pay disparity between the military sector and the private sector. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. And I feel like there's a correlation to police officers being underpaid and even teachers, to be honest, being underpaid for, for all of the stuff that they do. Um, yeah, it's pretty amazing that you know, you you enter a you enter a career field where you're passionate about it and that drives you to keep on doing doing the job and doing great things. But there comes a time where, especially if you're in harm's way, um, often it's like light bulb goes on and you're just like, wait a second, there's gotta be something else out there. So. Oh yeah, absolutely. So let's hear more about your something else out there. Yeah. So I uh, left, uh, left Savannah, went back to the San Francisco Bay area where my wife grew up and um, <clears throat> realized uh, how important money was when I looked around and, and uh, looked at the housing prices and stuff. And, you know, I'm, from the Midwest, lived in California after that, like I said, but I'm still hadn't bought a house um, in California yet at that point. So I had had a house in Savannah, which was like a hundred and fifty thousand dollar brand new, you know, new construction house, and and that's the, kind of the ballpark price of houses where I grew up and stuff. And so then I come back to the Bay Area, and I'm like, okay, the cheapest house we can find is like five hundred grand, and I'm like. Uh, well, I don't have any debt. I got out of, I paid off all of our debt. My student debt was gone. My wife's student debt was gone. Our cars were paid off, everything. It's zero debt. But we didn't have $100,000 saved up to put 20% down on a $500,000 house. Um, so, but I had the VA loan. 
so I didn't I didn't need a hundred thousand dollars down. Um, I already used my VA loan in Savannah, and thankfully, because of the cost of living, I was able to use a simultaneous VA loan in California. So I put zero down on a five hundred thousand dollar house in California as well, which was actually the least expensive house we could find in that market. Um, yeah. Um, it's just south of south of San Jose for those listening who know the area. It's you know the south part of the Bay Area. So, um, but you know what the great part about that was that was when I started really thinking about what I'm doing outside of my job. I, I was just thinking like, how else can I make money? And I looked at the house in Savannah. And I'm like, okay, well it's a rental now, and I'm you know making less cash flowing less than a hundred bucks a month, you know? So if something breaks, you're eating up a lot of that cash flow there. So I was like, could I do it better? I, I bet I could do that, but better somehow. So my wheels started turning and I knew I had this house in, in the Bay area and that house, um, appreciated just market appreciation. It was, it was a nice house, uh, nice enough. Didn't need any fixing up anyway. And it went up from 500 to 690 in two years. And my wife and I are kind of looking at each other like, did we just make 190 grand if we sold this place right now? And we did. We sold it for 690. Um, and that was kind of where we're like, okay, there's something to this real estate thing. Like we just tax free. We just, we lived in it for two years. So tax free, we, I think our net profit was uh 150 or something like that. So what we did was we rolled it into another deal, another property. I say deal instead of property because I'm such a real <laughs> estate guy. <laughs> we rolled it into what became another deal, but it was our primary residence. We bought a house about two blocks from the beach in a town called Capitola, California, just near Santa Cruz. And um bought it for 905 and renovated it and sold it for 1.158 9 months later. Jeez. So we made there's a two hundred fifty thousand dollars spread in um, in nine months on that one. So we did some forced appreciation just by renovating, and the market was still going up. The time frame here is like two thousand fourteen or so. So um, yeah, so the market was going up, but we did uh, we did a nice renovation on the interior, and I saved money. I was like I was that guy who's like I hired a contractor, um, but I was the guy running to Home Depot every day, three times a day for the veteran discount, you know, it's like buying, <laughs> buying materials. I was like, what do you guys need? I'll go get it. You know? Um, so yeah, all these were, and we did it another time after that too, um, in the East Bay. So we did three live-in flips. Well, those are an interesting concept. I mean, a lot of people, military people have a different mindset. We've moved a lot. We've lived a lot of different places. But for people who have never actually done that, you know, you basically grew up in a house, you moved out, got an apartment, then you bought a house, now you've stayed in it. What would you encourage those people to get out of their comfort zone? Like, how would you say, like, what's the possibility there? For military people? No, for non-military people. Oh, for non-military. I mean, you can actually, you can still, you can still house hack. The cool thing is you can, if you're young, let's say you don't have a family or let, maybe you're married, but have a very understanding spouse. We'll say that um, you can buy a primary residence, just a home, say a three bedroom home. And um, depending on, you know, like I said, your, your status and flexibility, you can rent out the other two rooms. Um, so 
you got to be willing to be uncomfortable no matter which way you go, whether it's uh, learning a new skill set. I mean, everyone's learning new skill sets all the time, whether you're starting a new job or you're doing, you know, a hobby or whatever it is. So you think of real estate as the same thing. There's so many ways you can make money in real estate, but you have to have your head on a swivel and know what your options are. So maybe it's talking to a lender and asking what they what what options you can do. How can I get creative in my particular circumstance? And so if I was going back in time, even if I was non-military, I would have bought a one, two, three, or four unit um, dwelling. I would have moved into one unit and I rented out the others. And that is a way your 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 cost of living, your living expenses are oftentimes your, your highest expense in life. Uh, if you just think about your mortgage or your apartment, you know, your rent or whatever it is, usually that's the biggest chunk every month coming out. And so if you can minimize that or, re or remove it, you, you're, you can accelerate your ability to grow your wealth. And so if I'm, if somebody's listening, who's in their twenties or, or thirties or something, or just has a very uh, flexible and forgiving, for, forgiving, we'll say spouse, um, <laughs> You can rent out the other rooms in your primary residence to people, usually people you know, like, and trust and have them pay rent. That'll cover your mortgage or buy a fourplex. Uh, you can also get FHA loans with three and a half percent down. And actually, one thing the government just did was reduce the, the mortgage insurance rates on, um, uh, you know, on, on FHA loans. So uh, it's easier now than it's been to buy something like that with very low amount of money down, even if you don't have the VA loan. There's also USDA loans out there. If you live in more of a rural setting, um, there's some 0% down loans in the USDA sector. Um, I'm not a loan officer. I just know um, some kind of general stuff about, about this. So lots of options. So after the three flips, what was your next step? Uh, next step, I... Um, invested i took some of it some of the profit and invested in a as a limited partner in a um which is a passive investor in a an apartment actually a mobile home park syndication so um it was a 439 pad mobile home park uh portfolio my buddy who i went to college with had started buying apartments and I'm looking at him and he's flying around on private jets and just living a life. And at least that's what social media looked like anyway. And so I reached, I reached out, you know how that goes. I reached out to him and I was like, Hey man, um, what are you doing? He goes, Oh, I'm syndicating apartments, which just means he's finding debt on, he's buying apartments, but he's using debt like you normally would for a house. And then like say 80% leverage. And then instead of putting the 20% down, that you would put down on a house, you, you put 20% down personally, that's the equity. You raise the equity from your investors instead of you putting it down personally. And so I was one of those investors coming in. I just a tiny little sliver of it. Um, but so I had equity interest. I had, I was a limited partner. Um, the operators are called general partners. And so I was just a passive investor and um, made a good, a good chunk of money for doing nothing. So that was a great, a great thing to do. Another thing with syndications is you get a, a substantial tax write-off. Uh, you get a, a schedule K-1 um, document, which is just a tax document from the operators of the syndication. They send it to you before tax time, typically, uh, typically before tax time every year. And um, so if you invest $100,000, you might get to write off $40,000 of your taxable income. 
It's a mm -hmm. reduction of your taxable income. So, and you know, so fast forward that got, that got it started. Then I went to a conference, a multifamily conference. And I realized like people like me could buy apartments. And then, uh, you know, four, four and a half years ago, I started buying apartments, mobile home parks, um, uh, self-storage and student housing. And now in the next month or so, we'll own close to 5,000 units. So question for though, like, what is the buy-in that you need for some of those things? I mean, obviously don't give me all your behind the scenes dollars, but ballparks. No, yeah. Uh, no, it's, it's, uh, typically it is a $50,000 minimum investment. Um, and you also, depending on, so when we, when we're buying an apartment complex and raising money, we have to follow SEC law and the SEC requires us to fall under an exemption because we're not licensed broker dealers. You don't have to be, you just have to make sure you follow the gui the guidance the SEC puts out there, which means if it's a 506 B it's a regulation D 506 B. You don't have to remember that part, but that's friends and family money. That means you can't advertise the deal. So if I have a deal right now and I want to go raise money um, from people who are have a net worth of less than a million, like my mom, let's say, or or um, or my neighbor or a friend or something, if they're non-accredited, um, then uh, they make less. That means they mean they make they have less than a million dollar net worth or make less than two hundred thousand dollars a year. Um, for the next two years projected. So th that's like most of my friends, right? So if I want to raise money from them, um, I have 35 slot spots in that type of, of deal that I can offer up. But here's the catch. I cannot advertise. Like you can't, I can't put it on Facebook. I can't put it on. I can't blast it out to everybody that I don't know in an email. I have to have a substantive pre-existing relationship with those people. Um, the other way to do it is accredited investors only you probably see that on ads or whatever you know accredited investors only or like news um, yeah. ads and all kinds you see it all over the place those people have to be accredited meaning they do have to have that net worth and um, or income level and that allows me to go advertise openly but i cannot take any non-accredited investors so there's there's it's a it's a this or that type of thing what type of investor pool do you have how do you want to um, raise that capital? And uh, but yeah, it's it, and usually the threshold is set at fifty thousand because you never ever ever, but like when I'm talking to one of my investors, you will never, I will never um, allow them to invest their last fifty thousand dollars. If they only have fifty thousand dollars, they may not invest in one of my deals because that is not a smart move for somebody who only has fifty. I say only has fifty thousand. I'm just saying. If that is the only money that you have, you save from deployments or you've saved for whatever, do not invest that way. Invest that money in yourself, in coaching, in training, in trying to figure out you know, how to do that. There's private money. There's all kinds of other things you can do. But the SEC does not want us to, do, to, to uh, take a certain percentage of someone's technically of someone's net worth. So yeah. um, you know, there's all these like safety precautions that we take just to make sure that we're doing right by everybody. And honestly, the the great part is the returns are most of the time unreal. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, you know, we aim to double our investors money in, um, in five years. And in the last several years, we have doubled our investors money or more than doubled our investors money in 24 to 36 months. So, yeah. Yeah. That's quite a turn. <laughs> yep. It feels pretty good. 
So tell me a little bit more about the active duty passive income and how that came about. Uh, yeah, so active duty passive income, ADPI, I co-founded in 2017 um, with Mark Jan Sitch, and now we have an amazing team, a growing company, but we are the premier um, uh, military real estate investing education community. Um, and we have 70,000 members and growing substantially right now, uh, but we have several courses. We're, so we're an education company first. And we started off with just a Facebook group of a couple dozen people, friends and family, and then it grew. And um, and like I said, now it's 70,000 and, um, and pushing fast. But uh, what we did was just started kind of documenting some of the stuff that I just told you about. It's like we were, we were just documenting what we were doing. I bought a couple turnkey properties after I did that that uh, first investment in a, in a syndication as a passive investor. I was like, how can I do this passively? Because I have a job. How can I be passive? So I bought a couple turnkey properties and I just documented. I just went did some Facebook lives and told people what I bought and what the cash flow looked like. And then people started coming. People started asking. And as the community grew, we realized there's this blue ocean of military real estate investors that nobody is teaching. And so we wrote this book called Military House Hacking. Uh, it's a number one bestseller on Amazon, and we we give it away for free. Uh, the, we download it's a free download on our website as well. But um, bestseller on Amazon, and that was the that was the beginning when we wrote that book and we put out the first course, uh, which is like. Now it's like a hundred lessons, uh, military real estate investing Academy. Um, it really just teaches you how to do some of these, these things that I was talking about. Um, and you know, the, the big kind of moment that we realized we were onto something is when we started getting suggestions from the community, they started saying, we would love better lending. Can you guys do that? We would love uh, better insurance products. Can you guys do that? We would love to have realtors who could serve us better in all pockets of the U.S. Can you guys do that? We would love to invest with you. Can you guys do that? And so, over the last five years, we have met that. We've met that mission for each one of those things. We built out um, a real estate <laughs> brokerage, um, training agents nationwide. We have a mortgage company. Um, that actually just uh, was listed as the the number eight uh, best companies to work for in the mortgage industry in 2023. Um, and we have uh, very soon we have a way for people to invest with us. And um, and so yeah, we're we're just listened. We put together the community and started sharing our own stuff. And then we we used our ears. And what people were telling us is we need more. You guys, they said very clearly, you're the hub for all military real estate investing stuff. Give us more. And so now we're at that point where we're just listening and, and giving more. So can you tell me a little bit more about the upcoming investment opportunity? Uh, so ADPI Capital is, uh, so I, I mentioned a uh, uh, reg, regulation D506B and Reg D506C, the two things I just talked about, those are exemptions to the the law in the SEC that allow people to to uh, pool money together, right? But the problem is, is most of the military community, and you would know just as well as I, do not have $50,000 laying around. And we also aren't accredited. Typically, we don't make $200,000 a year or have a million dollar net worth. So the barrier to entry for military members is really, we we can't enter those types of deals. How am I supposed to invest 
as a military member in a syndication if I'm not accredited. And so um, a regulation A, a reg A plus is allows us to raise, um, we set a cap at $10 million. It'll be a fund where we can provide these amazing returns to our military community. It's really open to anybody, but we're targeting specifically the military because there's this huge barrier to entry. So we will partner with other operators and we have thousands of units. Our The ADPI team, we have thousands and thousands of units uh, purchased. So we know what we're doing in the apartment and storage space and all the things that I talked about. Um, lots of experience. And so we will operate those deals, partner with other, other operators and use that money from the community that the community has pooled to invest to provide those returns. So, so our community now will get to invest in these apartments where they didn't have that opportunity before. So it's really uh, for military by military. So I mean, out of curiosity, what's the buy-in look like for that? If you already have that, drawn we, up? we actually set the threshold at $500. Oh, wow. So, yeah, very inclusive. So, it, it, I mean, on payday, anybody can do it, you know? So, I mean, yeah. That's awesome. Because I don't remember, you know, no matter what level of the military, I said, you're not making that much money compared to a civilian yeah. counterpart. Yeah. yeah, the barrier to entry, trying to teach young soldiers, hey, you need to invest. Well, I can barely pay for, you know, my house or, you know, my car and all the different stuff. Yeah, $500, that's something that even if you couldn't do it every month, it's yeah. something you could be investing in, you know, when you can. Right. Or yeah, or you could save up, you know, through a couple months of just saving part of your paycheck and then, you know, get a great return out of it. So, so that's an awesome program. Really keeping a, a great eye out for the military and veteran community. So I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. So some Gotta other good things you've done. Let's talk about, I know you've done several things recently. You said up to um, coming up on 5,000 units. Yeah, we've got a monster storage deal. It's 2,634 units. Um, right now I'm uh, sitting around 2,500 units between storage, multifamily, um, uh, and student housing. So, yeah, it's just one. We have I've got four deals in the hopper right now, uh, which is over, uh, over 3,000 units. But the, one of them is just huge. It's a 2,600 plus unit storage facility portfolio. So, yeah, it's massive. Love. Yeah, it's a monster. So let's talk a little bit more about what you do for the veteran community. Mm -hmm. uh, for a veterans community project? Yeah. Yeah, so that is my favorite nonprofit. It's a platinum rated um, 501c3. Um, in 2019, I was uh, speaking at an event and I just called out on stage. I just said, hey, I'm going to figure out a way. I was trying to motivate people to give more and, and stuff. And it was like Christmas time. And I'm like, I'm going to donate a house in 2020. I committed right there in front of a couple hundred people. I'm just going to figure out a way to donate a house to a homeless veteran in 2020. So fast forward through 2020, we figured out a way to donate two houses. Uh, and um, it was two veterans community project. They build tiny home communities. Um, they're in Kansas City. Longmont, Colorado, basically Denver, um, Oklahoma City, Milwaukee, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and St. Louis, and expanding by a couple of communities per year. And um, so they're building 280 to 320 square foot houses. They're permanent. Uh, they're not like shacks on wheels. They're slab construction, and they have granite countertops, stainless steel appliances, you know, vinyl plank flooring. They're beautiful inside and out, and um, and the 
only rent that's due for a veteran to move into one of those, a homeless veteran, is to show up and talk to their case manager. These are not psychiatrists. They are case managers that meet the veteran where they are. So uh, it's and it's not the uh, the veteran that you typically think of the homeless veteran that's like, you know, stumbling over on the on the corner, you know, that's wasted or whatever. Some of some of those veterans, some of our brothers like that don't want help. They just never will. So these are the veterans who just lost their job, have nowhere else to go. And even families, um, some of the uh, some of the units are large enough for a family of four or five. So. um Anyway, making a massive dent there, the veteran homelessness population has gone from 38,000 in 2020 to 32,000 in 2022. So making a massive dent, it's a solvable problem. Um, since I started raising money for them, I've raised, um, well, collectively, I, I've put initiatives together, a lot of donors, um, uh, raised about a, about a half a million dollars for a veterans community project. And um, most of that is through an annual challenge for charity that I do. So last year we did a uh, 170 mile hike around Lake Tahoe and 12 of us uh, raised a bunch of money. We actually ended up raising $190,000 and um, we hiked nine days in a row, 20 miles a day around Lake Tahoe with 40 pounds on our back. Um, yeah, it was on average, we were on our feet 16 hours a day hiking. Uh, yeah. 20, 28,000, 28,000 feet of uh, elevation gain in nine days. So that one. Um, and then this year we're doing in May, we're doing the rim to rim to rim in the grand Canyon where you start at the South rim, you hike down to the river in the grand Canyon, the bottom of the grand Canyon, then you hike up the North side. And then uh, I'm sure you take a, take a picture there and then you go back down to the river and then back out. So it's 48 miles in one day. And uh, we're going to raise a bunch more money for that. So, you got to be bucking it to get 48 miles one day. Goodness. Yeah, it'll be about 22 <laughs> hours, probably 20 to, 20 to 22 hours. Well, at least it's beautiful scenery. Yeah. We're talking nice. about crazy physical feats. See, I know you did a half uh, Ironman with no prep. Half Ironman with no training, mind over matter. Yeah, I uh, for my <laughs> workouts, I lift weights and I and I walk a lot. But an Ironman, if you're not familiar with it, listening, it's a swim, bike, run. It's a triathlon. Uh, I don't swim, I don't bike, and I don't run. So uh, I just, I signed up, I committed to it, and um, I accomplished it. I just, uh, it was just all grind and uh, grit. So <laughs> made it. Yeah, I bet that was fun. How long were you sore afterwards? Uh, you know, I thought I was going to be a complete wreck for weeks and I was, I was sore the day after, like, I, I felt like I had a really, really hard leg day or something, but honestly I was up the next day walking around and driving around and doing whatever. So it didn't really, didn't really affect me that much. Don't wow. know how. Maybe I wasn't trying hard enough. That's probably what it was. I didn't, I didn't put enough effort in, but that was that, that was seven and a half hours of work. It was like seven hours and 22 minutes or something for me to uh, do that. 70, 70.3 miles. Yeah. I think the goals just finished. I don't think there's any, oh, yeah. yeah no. at a certain time. My, my goal was not die. Yeah. Just like, <laughs> you know, it's always a good goal when it comes to that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. 
So we're winding down here a little bit. So just a few questions for you. Mm -hmm. So one of the questions is you've been to South America, you've been to, you know, those beautiful Middle Eastern locations where the locals aren't always the most hospitable. Beauty. So where's somewhere, <laughs> somewhere else you'd actually like to travel to? I, I would love to go to Upchurch, England, where uh, my ancestors came from. Um, I'm, I don't know why. I, I don't think it's going to be in anything particularly beautiful or anything, but I just figure like that's where my roots came from, hence my last name. And the town still exists just southeast of London. Um, so that's one place. But uh, honestly, I'm more, uh, that's dreary. I'm looking at my window right now in California. It's raining and stuff. So let's go with like Bora Bora. Like let's go with, um, let's go with uh, the Maldives. I, I want tropical Caribbean uh, South Caribbean. I, I want warm, clear water and sunshine anywhere like that. And uh, Curacao is another one. So Maldives, Curacao, um, Bora Bora, uh, Bali, like, uh, man, I can't wait. It's going to happen. Yeah, now that sounds nice because yeah, the temperature where I'm at was in the seventies a few days ago. Now it's in the thirties. So yeah. yeah, I definitely would love some warm weather and sunshine. Yep. So another one, so you've had a lot of different aspects of your adult life, your life in general. If there's something you could go back and change, what would it be? Oh, man, something I would change. No regrets, man. No regrets. Uh, have you seen that, seen that tattoo? Right. Somebody, somebody tattooed, no regrets. No, I... I I I think I'm happy where I am, and I don't think that I would be here if I went back and changed anything. Although, you know, let me just say this, just to answer your question: if I had, if I could go tell my 18 year old self something, I would say, um, buy Bitcoin in 2010 <laughs> <laughs> and sell in 2020. Or no, I, but honestly, I would probably say start learning about real estate. Um, it's it's just the tried and true method to build long-term wealth. It's not a quick play, but um, over over a 10, 20 year period, you can amass uh, a lot of wealth and it's stable and people need housing. And so I would, I would tell my 18 year old self to go start buying uh, apartments a lot sooner. Man, you steal the thunder for my final question. There's usually 14, 18 to 14 is close enough. So I'm gonna have to spitball yeah. one here for yeah. you. I'm actually going to take it from one of my favorite podcast hosts. And if you had, could have dinner with anyone throughout history, you know, living, not living, who would it be? And why? Uh, I would, I would want to, I would want to meet one of my early ancestors in, uh, in England and just see if there are any similarities in personality or character traits. Um, and then aside from that on kind of a lighter, more fun note, John Wayne, just cause I think it would be like, just badass to sit down with him and be like, just see how, like he's he's like the original Jocko Willink, you know. <laughs> like he he's just so I don't know. I I I think I think he's great. So that's a very good answer, like especially being put on the spot last second there. Yeah, yeah. So anything else you want to bring up, or you know where to follow you, where to at you at? 
Yeah, um, at Real Eric Upchurch on Instagram. And um, if you're a military member and you want to learn about real estate investing, go to ActiveDutyPassiveIncome.com. And we've got tons and tons. And about 90% of what we do is free resources uh, for military. And we are all military and military spouses. Uh, we hire military spouses. And so it's just a really uh, a great place for military folks to uh, know, like, and trust each other. And we all speak the same language and I've experienced a lot of the same stuff. So great spot. Well, no, I've appreciated you being on here, especially since this was the second time. Fingers crossed the recording holds. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Constructive Curiosity. Constructive Curiosity is presented by SFC Consulting. For all your career coaching, project management, and leadership development needs, SFC Consulting has the insight to get it right. Visit sfcconsultingservices.com for more information.